It took from the dawn of the human race up to 1804 to reach a population of 1 billion. Then, in 1927, just 123 years later, the planet became home to its 2 billionth soul. The acceleration continued with 3 billion in 1959, 4 billion in 1974, 5 in 1987, 6 in 1999, 7 in 2011. And the 8 billionth person will open his or her eyes in 2023. At the current time, we are adding an extra billion people every 12 years. The UN expects to have a population of about 10 billion by 2050 an extra two billion mouths to feed compared to today. Beyond this, we don't really know what to expect. For 2150, population estimates vary enormously, with estimates ranging from much lower than we are today and much, much higher. What is clear, though, is that we still face a growing population, putting an increasing strain on an environment that is already in crisis from human activity. A population that is consuming more water and eating more food. The only thing that isn't increasing is the supply of arable land available to grow it on. Which means that we need to produce more and more food from the same amount of land, without affecting its ability to produce food in the future. And simultaneously, we need to limit our impact on an already strained environment. Hello and welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Alex Conacher. And I'm Rian Owen. And in this episode, we have partnered with Shell and we are thinking about crops. Specifically, how to grow more, grow to a higher standard and how to do it sustainably. We will learn about nutrient deficiency, increasingly sophisticated farming practices and how one overlooked nutrient, if delivered carefully, can be a game changer for farmers. We will also learn that a healthy onion is a pungent onion. But before we get into all that, we need to understand something of the history of fertiliser. And to begin with, it wasn't needed. Here is Dr Shami Zingare. He is the Director for Research at the African Plant Nutrition Institute. Historically, all civilizations have been built on fertile soils that supported good crop productivity to meet food requirements for high, large concentrations of populations. For most of human history, civilizations have clung to fertile regions. But as the population expanded, necessity and technological advance crossed paths. But the modern technologies in fertilizers gained prominence starting in the early part of the 20th century when we have a ghost process of production of synthetic nitrogen fertilizers was initiated. The Haber-Bosch process takes nitrogen from the air and converts it into ammonia, which can be put into fertilizer, nitrogen being one of the key nutrients for plant growth. And that has actually contributed to accelerated agricultural growth which has more than tripled food production in the world from 1961 to the present time. Since 1961, the area of land being used for farming has increased from 1 to 2 billion hectares. But in this time, food production has tripled. 
Or to put it another way, to produce as much food as we are by the methods employed in 1961, we would need 3 billion hectares of land rather than 2. This is farmland that we just don't have available to us. Or to put it yet another way. So, overall, it is estimated that close to half of the food produced in the world is actually attributed to the use of fertilizer. The theorising around fertiliser actually began even further back, in the 18th century. That was the earliest scientific work that provided the foundation for the modern science. It's also important to emphasise that the definition of fertiliser covers a wide range of material, both natural or industrially produced fertilisers of synthetic origin. And the key definition of fertilizers is based on a resource used to provide nutrients but containing at least 5% of one of the macronutrients, which is either nitrogen, phosphorus or potassium. This primarily covered the use of manure, but a big advance in theory came along in the 19th century with the German scientist Justus von Liebig, who became known for Liebig's law of the minimum. The law states that plant growth is determined not by the sum total of all resources available, but by the production factor, the specific resource that is most limited. So the most limiting factor determines the level of yields achieved. So that applies generally to all the production factors, biological, physical and chemical. But when applied to nutrients, the law then clarified that if one of the essential plant nutrients is deficient, then plant growth will be poor even when all the other essential elements are abandoned. A farmer can pile all the fertiliser that he or she wants onto the field, but if one nutrient is missing, crop health or yield will be suboptimal. The approach to providing the right nutrients for the soil conditions and the plant requirements needs to be surgical. The soils in the world are highly variable and there are different ways that are used to classify soils but there are three major factors that drive the status of soils. The first factor is the rock itself. The original rock from which soils are formed, so the best rock, due to the highly variable nature of the best main rocks on the planet, soils tend to be you know, highly variable due to that. The second factor is climate. So both temperature as well as the rainfall have a lot of effect of the rate of weathering, um, leaching and movement uh, or reactions uh, that happens in the soil. And that determines also the status and all the quality of the soils. And finally, vegetation. So different vegetation that add organic matter to the soil have different quality and they determine also the nature of the soils. So given these factors, which uh, interact in very complex way, the result in a very diverse map of soils across the globe. So um, there are actually hundreds of soils <laughs> that can be classified. All of the environmental factors and the varying requirements of different crops add up to a boggling complexity of conditions, and agronomists, among which Shami is a prominent figure, have come up with a concept to help farmers get to grips with the challenge, 
They call it the four R's. I also wanted to highlight that in plant nutrition, there is a key concept called the four R, nutrient stewardship, which is a concept developed by the global research community together with the fertilizer industry to provide the context and principles that are needed to be put in place based on a very simple framework of applying the right type of nutrients. It can be synthetic or organic nutrients in the right rate, in the right time and in the right place. That is the right source, the right rate, the right time and the right place. To find out more, we need to go to one of the dominant agricultural countries in the world, India. My name is Amit Rastogi, and I am the Executive Vice President Technology in Coromandel International Limited, with the responsibility of leading the research and development activities on plant nutrition products. Coromandel is based in Hyderabad and is a leading agri-inputs company. Basically, fertilizers, pesticides and nutrients, as well as acting increasingly as a kind of agricultural consultant to farmers. So the company is uh, India's largest, second largest manufacturer and marketer of phosphatic fertilizer with a production capacity of 3.4 million tons. So we sell across a number of states in India including Telangana, Andhra Pradesh, Maharashtra, Tamil Nadu, Karnataka, and West Bengal. So we cover around 30 million farmers to our, uh, in a geography that we operate. That's 30 million farmers. Just checking that you picked up on that. And the farmers grow various crops. Oil, seeds, pulses, soybeans, onions, and cash crops such as cotton. And the company has been supplying these farms since the early 1960s. Then, starting in 1998, the Sulphur Institute, along with the Fertilizer Association of India and the International Fertilizer Association, conducted large numbers of trials in India to study the sulphur deficiency in Indian soils. In February 2003, they conducted a workshop in New Delhi where they presented the findings. One of the major conclusions was that sulphur deficiency was widespread in Indian soils and the sulphur deficit was expected to reach 1.9 million tons by 2011. This deficit refers to the gap between the sulphur extracted from the soil by crops annually and the sulphur applied to the soil during the year. And this is important because sulphur is actually pretty vital for plants. It's a necessary enzyme that aids in the uptake of nitrogen in the crop and without it, the plant's metabolism is seriously compromised. Remember Liebig's law of the minimum? Here is Ron Olson from the Sulphur Institute to explain sulphur deficiency. The big reason that we have sulphur deficiencies in soil has to do with basically how that soil formed over, over time. Soils that are very low in organic matter content tend to be low in sulphur. Organic matter contains a fair amount of sulphur and as organic matter breaks down and, and becomes uh, releases its nutrients, one of those nu nutrients is sulfur. So higher organic matter sulfurs around the globe have higher sulfur levels and tend to show less deficiencies than those lower organic matter soils. Strangely, we haven't needed to worry about sulfur in agriculture until more recently. 
And for once, it is at least partly a problem that's born out of us doing the right thing. One of the main reasons in terms of well, why this has become such a focal point in the last 25 years is that we've cleaned up the atmosphere. Acid rain was a large concern, still is, still needs to be watched because sulfur in the atmosphere can create a, a, a sulfur reaction that can uh, damage property, damage trees. And uh, so as we've cleaned up the sulfur out of the oil and, and uh, the coal, we've scrubbed it out of our power plants, uh, we've taken that sulfur out of the atmosphere it's no longer being deposited uh, free of charge on farmers' fields. And we have to, uh, and as a result of that, with uh, better hybrids of corn and varieties of soybeans and wheat and canola, and, and we're just doing a better job of raising crops that have higher nutrient requirements because of the higher yields we're taking up, we are seeing a need for sulfur to be added to the soil. Ron explains that the soils in India are definitely deficient in sulphur. And wherever in the world that this is the case, it usually requires an educational effort to correct. Whether we're in the US or in India, farmers tend to think of nutrients as being nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. They don't spend enough time thinking about the secondary nutrients like calcium, magnesium, and sulphur, and even less time thinking about micronutrients like zinc, or copper or boron. And so, but the balanced crop nutrition thinking takes into account looking at providing all those nutrients to meet the needs of what might be short in the soil or what the crop needs. Amit Rastogi says that the work by the Sulphur Institute and the other associations were a trigger to start putting sulphur in fertilizers. In 2005, Coromandel introduced bentonite sulphur. Coromandel is also a large manufacturer of phosphatic fertilizers which use sulfuric acid in the process and therefore contain about 13% sulfate sulfur. We manufacture about 1 million tons of these fertilizers which would supply about 130,000 tons of sulfur to the soil. When we wanted to increase the production capacity of these fertilizers, we faced the constraint that environmental regulations did not permit us to set up new sulfuric acid capacity. This type of sulfur is fast-acting but it is also water-soluble, so it can cause eutrophication, where you have nutrient runoff into bodies of water, which can cause algae bloom and other growth. This can take up all the oxygen in the water and suffocate the system. But Shell had recently developed an elemental sulphur additive for fertilizer, which is called Thiogro. Theo is the Greek word for sulphur, and gro is self-explanatory. It's not water-soluble, so did not face the same restrictions. So Coromandel added it to the fertilizer they were producing. And it's common to use both types of sulfur to get the benefits of both varieties, fast-acting and longer-lasting and non-polluting. My name is uh, Rafael Garcia. My actual position is a subject expert matter on uh, sulfur fertilizer within Shell and Thiagro. Rafael sums up his job more simply. I can tell you in, in, a, in a sentence, we take sulfur where it doesn't belong and put it where it belongs. We take sulfur that is removed from uh, the oil and gas or from the gas that shouldn't be there because it will go to the environment and to the air and put it within the fertilizers so it can go to the plants. Rafael explains the mechanism. We try to design the sulfur as elemental sulfur, uh, the element. 
it's uh, not available for the plant as itself. It needs to be decomposed by uh, the bacteria that already exist on the soil. So for that to happen, you need to have a particular set of characteristics on the way you put that elemental sulfur within the fertilizer. First and foremost, it needs to be dispersed as granules. And these need to be very small, down to about 10 microns in diameter, compared to the 100 to 300 microns of more traditional sulfur bentonite, so that soil bacteria can break it down into a form that can be taken in by the crop. This also means that sulfur is released over time, giving the ground that nutrient for longer, rather than a sudden spike. If you are applying sulfur as a sulfate and you have a big rain, it will be dissolved on that rain. It may leach and it may go to uh, over groundwater or underground water. It will be removed from the plant, especially in high raining or places where the rain is very intensive. This is elemental sulfur, so it's not soluble by itself. It will be decomposed by the bacteria. Bacteria take time, and at the end, what you are getting is a fertilizer that is being slowly released to the plant as the bacteria converted, and at the rate that the plant needed. In terms of effectiveness, a number of tests have been conducted with the help of farmers over the last 14 years. As any fertilizer, some crops will have a response, some crops will not have a response, and depending on the year, the amount of rain, etc. Overall, we have a very good success. In one type of fertilizer, for example, they have seen a 10% yield increase, and in another, 15. There is higher yield increase, uh, things like paddy rays on India with one of our licensing, I think they said 20-25%. So when you say 10% more crops, you're saying on the same land with the same plant, you get, well, a lot more rice. Uh, for example, you could say a million ton of uh, fertilizer containing sulfur may give you several, several million ton more of rice or oil. Back in India, Amit and Coromandel picked the farmers from the western state of Maharashtra to trial their new fertilizers. One of the reasons for selecting the state was that there are many progressive farmers in the state who grow sulfur-loving crops such as onion, cotton and soybean. Amit explains that the farmers in this region are highly educated and take a sophisticated approach to the job, a lot of business farmers rather than subsistence. Many of the farmers in Maharashtra view farming as a business. They have now have access to internet and smartphones, which allows them to access a lot of information on new agricultural practices and products. This is especially true of the younger generation of farmers. Earlier, the farmers would use mainly fertilizers with primary nutrients such as nitrogen, phosphorus and potassium. With increasing awareness about balanced nutrition, they are also now looking at fertilizers which provide secondary nutrients such as sulfur and micronutrients such as zinc and boron. He says that they get their soil and plant tissue samples tested frequently and know the levels of various nutrients in the soil and plants, not just the big three. But the proof of the onion is in the smell, and pungency is a key measure of success for a lot of these farmers. Uh, Maharashtra is the state which grows the highest quantity of onions in India, and the farmers are very particular about having, a, having the pungency of the onion. And this is indeed getting, the, the use of self-financed fertilizers is enhancing the pungency level. So we are finding that the oil content in crops like soya bean have increased, 
so we this is again related to the fact that you have better assimilation of both nitrogen and sulfur in the right ratio and so whether it is the uh, bowl size in the cotton or oil content in soybean or the pungency of onion or it is the longer shelf life which the farmers are, are reporting because of the use of self-financed fertilizers we are getting a very you know a very widespread positive response across the state of Maharashtra wherever self-financed fertilizers have been used. And there is another issue facing the whole world, but Indian agriculture is impacted more than most, and that is climate change. Indian agriculture is highly dependent on the annual monsoon season which lasts from June till September. Nearly half the agriculture in India is fed by rains, while the other half has access to irrigation. What we are observing is that there is a change in the rainfall pattern of the monsoon. The onset of the monsoon is getting delayed to sometimes even in July or early August, and it is sometimes getting extended to October. Now, this delay in the onset of monsoons is also delaying the sowing operations. So, sowing doesn't start in June as would be traditional. It now starts in late July. Also, the number of rainy days is decreasing, even though the total precipitation is still around 800 millimeters. This is leading to long dry spell between rainy days, which is exposing the crops to higher stress. Another form of stress which is now being seen is higher temperatures, more number of days with high temperatures. This high temperature is affecting the soil moisture and also the biological life in the soil because the soil health is highly dependent on the microbial life in the soils which cannot tolerate high temperature. So we are increasingly seeing that our soils are becoming less fertile and have less moisture in them because of the higher temperatures. So we are indeed quite vulnerable to climate change. Farmers need to do everything they can to look after their soil. There's one expression that keeps coming up in conversation with these agronomists, and that is being a steward of your soil. Here's Ron from the Sulphur Institute again, talking about the one message he would like to get out to the farmers all over the world. The one thing I'd like them to know is that balanced crop nutrition is essential whether I'm a farmer in India, or I'm a farmer in China, or I'm a farmer in France or Germany, balanced crop nutrition, meaning we've got to supply all of the 17 essential nutrients that the crop needs. And that's across all crops, whether I'm growing an eggplant, whether I'm growing chrysanthemums, whether I'm growing potatoes or rice, uh, balanced crop nutrition is important. So as a farmer in India, I would encourage them to know what their soil test levels are talk to their, their, their local supplier, uh, their local agronomist, and test their soil to ask the question, I would like to know more about 4R nutrient stewardship. Uh, the 4Rs uh, pertain to the right product to apply at the right rate, at the right time, and in the right place. Think about it, understand that my crop's gotta be, I've gotta meet all the nutrient needs, not just my nitrogen or phosphorus or potassium, Sulfur really is the fourth major nutrient after those three, and uh, we need to make sure we're doing a good job of balancing the diet. His sentiments are echoed by Upendra Singh, who is the Acting Director of Research at the International Fertilizer Development Centre, who encourages farmers to think about their soil in much the same manner as bookkeeping. 
it's like your bank account you cannot just keep withdrawing money out of it and you know expect the account to remain viable uh, along you know you you sooner or later be having overdrafts and that's the thing that farmers need to avoid when it comes to their soil as well they cannot just continue to take the harvest out of the soil without adding anything back to the land and uh, the system can be very sustainable and here is shell's raphael again with a final thought on what it's like to work in the field no pun intended of fertilizer science it's actually pretty cool you are you know helping you know feed the world i wouldn't be as arrogant as say i'm feeding the world but i'm putting my small grain on helping feeding the world by developing something that will produce more food on the same land and at the same time and taking something that could potentially be environmentally bad and make it eat environmentally sound Engineering Matters is a production of Rebe Media our producers are Alex Conacher, Bernadette Ballantyne, Rian Owen, Ross McPherson, and Tim Sheehan. This episode was written and hosted by me, Alex Conacher. My co-host was Rian Owen. Sound engineering by Ross McPherson. Series supervision by John Young. And our own hungry mouth to feed is Rory Harris. Special thanks to Shell, the African Plant Nutrition Institute, the International Fertilizer Development Center, the Sulphur Institute, and Coromandel Fertilizers India. Thank you for listening. You can find us on all podcast apps, on our website, engineeringmatters.reby.media, or share us on Twitter and LinkedIn.